You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. So welcome to another edition of Currency Cloud's Payments Innovation Podcast. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Keith Gross, who is head of UK, head of Europe, head of everything kind of European for, for Plaid. So Keith, welcome to the welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Richard. You you, you about nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> and and we were just saying before we we press record that I think for both of us, this marks almost a year to the day since our respective companies put us into a remote working test mode. And we've never kind of come out of that test mode. Yeah, I mean, what what a crazy year. I don't think any of us could foresee it. I actually recently went back and looked at my email to the team when we decided to go work from home. And I said, well, we'll be back in the office in two weeks at that yeah. time. And yeah. how, how naive was I? But I guess how naive was the world? Um, it has certainly been an eventful year for the world and, and for fintech as well. Yeah, Anderson, we'll come on to that. I think what will be interesting is maybe to... to for the listeners to understand a little bit about you and your background, and then obviously jump into to Plaid. So you are ex-Google, ex-Bain. I think you, you moonlighted on Wall Street for a, a few months at Credit Suisse, realized you didn't want to be a Wall Street guy and kind of moved into to where you are now. But why don't you give a, a bit of a background in terms of kind of Keith and, and where you've been? Yeah, absolutely. So, so as you said, I'm head of UK at Plaid. I joined just over two years ago to lead the expansion to Europe, originally from the product side uh, based in San Francisco, but then in classic startup fashion, things move fast. I moved over here a few months after starting up Plaid to open up our offices in London and Amsterdam, um, brought over a small landing team, and then have been scaling and growing the team since then and moved over to GM, uh, the UK, and also the region um, for now with Plaid. Before that, I was at Google and actually started at Google in a, um, a strategy role where you get dropped in, into new products that are just getting off the ground. And I actually ended up working on the early iterations around Google Wallet and Google Pay and internationalizing that product. And that was really where I got eyes wide open insight into the broken world of financial infrastructure under the covers, got really interested in that space, ended up staying at Google to help grow their hardware efforts with the Pixel phones and the Google Home speakers, but always looking to scratch that fintech itch. And Plaid was the, the perfect space for me. And, and yeah, as you said, I, I did uh, intern investment banking. It wasn't for me, I think. I've always been a tech nerd who's interested in finance versus the other way around. And so I think fintech has, has been the perfect place for me. So you wore a suit for three months and then that wasn't enough. So that was too That's much. Right. No, no more collared shirts. And, you know, given, <laughs> given the work from home, I, I, I like doing my work in slippers now. So that's, that's the life I lead. I don't think I'd fit in in a bank. <laughs> and, that, and now someone who resides in, um, in the cool, hip kind of East London scene, uh, you fit right in. So it's, uh, it's good. <laughs> that's right. That's um, right. This, as we said, there's so much going on, I think, in this space at the moment and in the world right now. Um, so it's difficult to know where to start. But I think what would be interesting is maybe for, for those of our listeners who don't know much about kind of Plaid and, and I guess the open banking world, maybe give us kind of your view on, on a, what Plaid do, but also kind of the, this whole world of open banking. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Plaid, we call ourselves an open banking platform. And what that means is we connect to thousands of banks, actually more than 13,000 banks across North America, so the US, Canada, the UK and Europe. We standardize that access across different bank implementations, different regulatory environments, and provide a single API for fintech developers to use to build banking use cases into their products and services. So that's really what open banking is, is 
using an API to connect bank accounts. And this supports both financial data use cases, like being able to connect your accounts to budgeting applications or file for lending use cases to prove your affordability, all the way to open banking payments. So being able to send in some bank transfers on faster payment rails in the UK or separate instant payment rails in the EU um, and spans that, that whole gap into a single API. Um, Plaid got started in 2013, actually because our founders were trying to build their own budgeting application. And we're finding that the hardest part about that was being able to connect to bank accounts. And so they started building all this cool infrastructure to do that. And then other startups came to them and said, your app sucks, but your infrastructure is amazing. Can we license that for you? And, and in the classic Silicon Valley story of, you, you know, you can't be a B2B startup without having pivoted. We pivoted and built this fantastic business uh, that has now grown into the leading open banking platform. And, and so I want to come on um, in a minute to some of the differences. Obviously, you started in the US and, and now you're kind of leading the efforts over, over this side of the Atlantic. I want to come on to the differences um, by, by jurisdiction. But I think that there's kind of three key things that I think probably have happened over the last kind of year, 18 months, kind of the, the, the C word of COVID uh, being number one. And I think fintech is probably a success story of, of the pandemic. Um, you know, certainly at Currency Cloud, you know, we've, we've reaped the benefits, I guess, of, of you know, this improved digitalization. So how has is, how is kind of Plaid seen this? I think I'm right in saying that you've seen you know, exceptional customer growth across 2020, continuing in 2021. So it's, it's been a, a good thing for Plaid as a business, but probably for the industry. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And given where we sit, what's good for fintech is good for Plaid. So actually, while it's been good for us, it's been good to, for us because it has been good for fintech and the companies that we power. Uh, and when you think about what happened, you had entire generations of people that were used to banking in person or not that comfortable with digital banking or hadn't been introduced to the newest fintech apps, forced to be in their homes, suddenly paying very close attention to their financial health because of COVID, they were furloughed or laid off. And so the need for fintech tools and applications just went through the roof. Um, and so I think actually fintech showed up in a really great way to help people. And I think it set a new watermark where when we come out the other side of this, I hope, I hope a good amount of things return to normal, but I don't think we'll ever go back to the pre-COVID levels of fintech adoption. I think habits have been formed. People have seen the value in these use cases, and they're going to continue to use them going forward. We just need to make sure that we don't leave anyone behind as we go in that direction. And you know, I think an example of what you're starting to see is a lot of bank branches being closed, right? Mm. A lot of a lot of banks are seeing that, okay, actually digital is the future of our business right now. Um, and, and I think that's been the theme of fintech. The other thing that, that I would add in there is the role of infrastructure and the importance of it really was highlighted in the COVID uh, situation. So think about in particular on SMB side, where you had government saying, okay, we have to get loans out immediately into the hands of all these small businesses. Actually, well, the hardest part wasn't getting that approval because everyone was like, yes, this is a no-brainer, whether in the US or the UK, you know, with CBOLs or the PPP loans. The hard part was then getting that money to making the payments. And yeah. it was, you know, like the US was mailing checks to people to the wrong addresses. It's like it, it's incredible that in the 21st century, that was where financial infrastructure was. And so I think the importance of making improvements there was really brought to light. Uh, and the role of fintech there, I think, will continue to increase. Yeah, and I think again, there's there are some massive similarities across both sides of the Atlantic. I think probably the, the UK and Europe were slightly further ahead in their kind of banking infrastructure and banking capabilities. But I was in the US for, for three years living through this. And you're right, it's it checks turning up and the money is how fast FedEx can deliver it rather than how fast can the banking network can make a payment, which seems crazy. And right. I guess the, 
so, so this digitalization was was happening, right? So the, the digitalization, the consumer has been happening for a number of years, but for, for me, COVID is, has been a catalyst to that and, and bringing it into that SMB space, which I think is is much needed. It's a much needed kind of kick up the, the backside, which is um, which has been good. So the, the second thing, and, and I think the, the, the two things are probably closely linked in terms of, we should probably talk about Visa quickly, but also then talk about Brexit. And I think they're, they're probably linked to the card world. So Visa, I, I don't want to go into you know, the, the, the whys and whereabouts, but a lot of Plaid and Visa in, in, the, in the press, and since it's been, it, it didn't come to fruition for one reason or another, but how has that impacted your kind of strategy from January 2020 going into kind of January 2020 and beyond? How, how are I now thinking about it? Because of, it's a new world right now between when that, that deal was initially talked about. It's, it's a completely new world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a, a lot changed. So, so yeah, for context there, Visa announced an intention to acquire Plaid in January of 2020. COVID hit, regulatory reviews go on. We decided to part ways and go our separate paths in January of 2021. What happened over that period is what we just talked about, a massive increase in the, the importance of fintech. And there's a clear realization that there is a lot that Plaid could do on our own, standalone to build into that. And we needed to be focused on doing that. So what's coming out of that is basically one, I think a renewed sense of excitement for the level of infrastructure that we're gonna build as a standalone company to be the leading open banking platform globally. But then also doubling down on the importance of Europe and the UK market for us. So I'm doubling the team here. We're really focused on testing out new products, building into new use cases. Uh, and, and so for us, it's going back into builder mode, right? You own your own destiny again. You just have to get back in the trenches and, and get growing. And that's uh, something that we're really excited to do. And I think FinTech is, is primed to have a fantastic year coming out of 2021. And there's, there's more to do than there are people to do it. And I'm sure it's the same on the currency cloud side. Yeah, no, it is some exciting stuff. So your your job description has probably changed a few times, but you know when when you came into the San Francisco office, moved over to the UK, and that was what kind of March, um, twenty March of twenty nineteen. Yeah, so almost two years ago, exactly. And then 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 the announcement comes out in twenty twenty, and then stuff hits. So you're kind of sitting, sitting there scratching your head, saying, "My role's changed a lot, and I guess more pressure on Keith to grow UK and Europe <laughs> based on a number of factors." Well, also more, more excitement and more impact, right? Correct, I think yeah. when people join startups, um, that's the mentality they need to have. And, and that's certainly what I look for when I hire people too. So yeah, more, more responsibility, but then you're like, okay, we can have more impact. We can make more change. We can build new things. Let's go do it. And then we, we, we come on to kind of the third thing. So again, you know, credit to you for coming over and taking on this challenge, especially with, with Brexit happening. Um, and I think what's interesting there is kind of, that we talk about the card duopoly and we talk about, you know, suddenly with um, the UK and Europe kind of splitting and kind of no more capital interchange with certainly the UK and EC MasterCard, you know, hiking up their rates in, in a world that was already pretty expensive. And I was listening to Hiroki from GoCardless talk about this. He's been quite outspoken on this for, for a while the opportunity in direct debit and in open banking, banking products like payment initiation. So, so how do you view Brexit, apart from a, a big pain for all of us, um, how have you viewed kind of that and reacted to, you know, the MasterCard announcement in terms of kind of the payment initiation side of the business? Yeah, I guess uh, a lot to unpack there. So a few things, I think, first of all, Brexit has been a headache. It was a headache we foresaw. It was already, obviously, the referendum had already happened when we decided to come out here. And that was part of the reason why we decided to, from the start, right. have an office in Amsterdam and an office in London. 
um, it does need to lead into duplicate your licensing, some types of, of staff and personnel. So I think uh, regardless of where you were in the financial services or fintech industry, it probably was, was a painful thing to go through no matter what. But I think coming out of it, I do see some opportunity. And the thing that I'm most excited about is the UK now can take its position as a leader in PSD2 and open banking and start to conduct smart divergence. Like where can we actually make changes faster than they would happen at a European Union level to make sure that policy is moving at the speed of fintech? Right. I think that's always the challenge, right? You have to make sure consumers are protected, but startups and fintechs are moving fast. They're finding new use cases. They're growing at speeds that I think regulators can sometimes struggle to keep up with. And I think I'm excited to see where the UK can start to make improvements and changes to regulation, both in PSD2 and beyond, to make sure that they're building themselves into the best place to launch and test and grow these new fintech startups. And obviously with the Khalifa review that just came out and some of the focus from the HMT, I think they're having that they have their eyes set on that on that prize as well. So I think that sets us up nicely for a conversation around, I guess, your or, or plans kind of global expansion, especially into kind of Europe and the differences in the landscape of open banking between the US and, and, and the UK and Europe, which I have to profess I don't completely understand. So we've got the expert here to talk about it. Um, and as I understand it, so in, in the US, you've been tremendously successful, but I guess as that connectivity lens between the banks. And, and that's kind of the part that PSD2 kind of says is given away for free in, in the UK and Europe. So how, how have you, well, first of all, kind of what are the main differences uh, for those who, like me who don't understand it completely fully? Um, and then how you, how you started to tackle those in, in, in your role building out um, over here? Yeah, absolutely. Those are great questions. So um, I guess I'll start out with open banking in the UK and Europe and what it looks like, right? So there is the second payment services directive, which as your point, required all banks to expose APIs that allowed you to connect to bank accounts. And then the implementation of that was defined at a very high level and given to individual states and markets to implement across Europe and the UK. What the UK did and why I think they've become a leader in open banking is they created an implementation entity, the open banking implementation entity that set standards and it was tasked by the Competition and Markets Authority to hold the CMA9, the largest UK banks, to a high standard of implementing that standard. So what you come out with then is actually the speed of implementing the APIs happen faster. The standardization across those APIs happen faster here. And that's why you've seen open banking take off in the UK faster than it has in continental Europe, where you have multiple different standards. There's Berlin Group, there's STET, and then the implementation at an institution level is actually very different across those different um, banks. So we'll come back to that in a second. Yep. In the US, there is no open banking regulation. And what Platt operates under is coming out of the financial crisis, there was a legislation in the US called Dodd-Frank. And in Dodd-Frank, there's something called Section 1033. And what that does is it defines a consumer's right to access their financial data. And that right must be protected. What it doesn't do is tell you, how does that happen? Force banks to allow that access. And this is where Plaid, from a market-led perspective, started building. So we started doing things like signing deals, building our own connections to banks, all sorts of different ways to allow users to connect their accounts. And as more and more FinSecs are growing, like we were the early infrastructure behind Venmo, which then became a phenomenon on P2P payments, for example, um, all these other industries, as FinTechs are growing, people started seeing the value of this. And over time, the market actually drove the need for open banking rather than regulation. And now you actually have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the US starting to look at, okay, how do we now standardize and put some rules around this? And they're starting to think through legislation. 
so at a high level, the way I describe it is, um, I guess before I get back to that. So then that's where Plaid really added value, right? We were that connectivity layer. We connected to 11,000 banks in the US, right? Cre so, creating so, the market standard, as you said. So creating we, the market standard and really yeah. building the market. There, there were players that tried to do this before, but nobody to the level of making it super easy for developers to get started that built the market uh, success that Plaid grew. Here in the UK and Europe, by the time we arrived, you already had PSD2. And so I often get this question of, well, connectivity is solved, what value do you bring? And my response to that is typically, well, you've probably never tried to build to these APIs at multiple banks then. Because the reality is, it is still an incredibly painful process. It's very engineering intensive. And it is a classic example of where there's value in having a platform player. Because then you can focus your core competency on connecting to and building relationships with all of these banks to manage issues that come up to show them how you have best-in-class API structures. And then you can provide that to thousands of customers rather than each individual FinTech growing their own payments connectivity engineering team. It just doesn't make sense over the long-term. So it is definitely easier to connect to banks in the UK and Europe, but there's still very much value, particularly in players that want to expand into multiple markets to work with an open banking platform. But the other thing that it forces, which I think is good for the market and that the UK and EU have really started to, to make happen from a positive flywheel is, it also focuses you on what's the analytics layer that you can build on top of that that adds yeah. value, right? And so what Plaid does as well is we cleanse and standardize transactions across thousands of banks. So if you're building a budgeting app, you can tag payroll, coffee, Uber rides, right? Rather than seeing random strings of numbers, all of that takes a ton of time, a ton of effort to build. And again, adds a lot of value across the ecosystem. So it has forced Plaid to think about what are we building on top of this? We're already heading in that direction, but that's where open banking is growing in the UK and the EU. But there's very much still a value in just providing the connectivity as well, especially for growing fintechs that want to be able to expand easily across the Atlantic or into multiple markets or across the, the Brexit border into Europe. I, think, well, you, I mean, you're talking to the right kind of people in terms of that, that you're know, pushing the infrastructure play. Right. I know we've seen a lot because ultimately, a lot of the fintechs that have kind of come out of the last few years and continue to come out, they're not, they don't want to get into that messy stuff. They want to focus on providing a rich, seamless kind of digital experience for their customers, their customer-focused companies. And they, they do that in a digital way, but they need platform and infrastructure providers. To be able to do that. Yeah, I, I always use the Twilio example here because I think yeah. people, it, it's easy to grok that, right? It's like, should every company that needs to send you an OTP code have to build into the telephony system? No, it makes sense to have one player there who's going to help enable this individual use case so you can concentrate on the rest of your app and service. And the Twilio example is also good in terms of how you set up your API stack in terms of that modular approach. Uh, people talk about it as kind of building blocks, but I think it's interesting. Um, so, because there's lots of components to open banking and lots of components to what you offer. And the ability to Absolutely. seamlessly kind of build those into what you're building at a point in time is, is just smart. So. And you bring up a good point there, because one of the things that we do, and again, where you can add value as an open banking platform is we take the overall standard and then we structure that into use case-based endpoints. So depending on what you're building, there's an endpoint that's specifically structured for you. So you don't have to do that translation yourself. And there's real value in that for sure. So listen, we covered some of the, the challenges or the, the differences, I guess, in, in, in the US and and, and Europe. But what does that mean for the competitive landscape? How, what does the competitive landscape look like in the US compared to, to Europe and US? Europe, you've got some kind of focused players in distinct markets. That's a really interesting companies. And you know, the way we view competition is it makes a market. So it's really good. And it, it, ultimately, what we're all trying to do is build 
a better experience in terms of kind of financial health, financial education for our customers, for the end customers. But what does that capacity landscape look like over here compared to um, the other side? The other side, yeah, it sounds it, rude. It, the other side of the Atlantic, the US. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be like, you, you've lived there too. It's, I know, it's I know. Strange. It, well, I don't know. <laughs> um, no, it's a, it's a great question. So, so I think, you know, the high level way I put it is that the US is five years ahead of Europe in terms of what you can do with open banking because it is market driven. And Europe and the UK are five years ahead in the US in terms of standardization and the ease of being started as an open banking company. What that means from a competitive standpoint is you have fewer larger players in the US because you really have to build a massive scale. Part of what also drives that is there are far, far, far more banks in the US than there are in most individual markets in Europe. It's less concentrated, right? You have a huge long tail of community banks that you have to cover, and it just takes a ton of effort and resources to build that out. And so you can't, it's very hard to go start an open banking startup in the US and get to that scale. It takes a long time. In the UK and Europe, what you see is a much more competitive early stage setup here. So you have a lot of startups in each individual market that's specializing in their market. I think what you're going to see develop over the long run, you're already starting to see this, is there will be a few players that are pan-European or at least cover most of the markets in Europe. And they offer a ton of value to larger companies that want to work with a single provider. And there will also be successful startups that address individual markets within Europe or within the UK. And that's their focus and bread and butter. And I think that the market is big enough and the competitive dynamics are there where that is going to be a good end state equilibrium. It's not going to be winner take all or anything like that. And I think to your point, ultimately that competition is going to drive prices lower, benefit end users, benefit customers who are the fintechs who are building using these tools. And so I think it's great. I, you know, I think competition is fun. Competition is good. That's what PSD2 was all about. And it does create interesting competitive dynamics here that I think will ultimately be beneficial for everyone. And so, and that, I guess, is talking to you know, the, the competitive landscape and, and actually how banks and fintechs are, are in partnership, albeit maybe by an, an infrastructure player. Where does big tech fit, fit in? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's where you start to think about this term embedded finance, mm. right? Which is, uh, I think of it as sort of a, a, a corner case or, or a sub-segment of open banking, but it can also extend into other things. But basically, Embedded finance is the idea of there are now tools in place where you can bring financial services into what you consider as other technology companies in the way that you couldn't before. And so I think great examples of this, for example, are gig economy players. Think of the deliveries and Ubers of the world. They're providing real income to the people that are serving as, as gig workers there. It seems very obvious that they should be providing current accounts, loans, all sorts of financial services. And now they're really the tools available through open banking and banking as a service and, and, and other tools like that, where you can do that in a way that's cost effective to serve. And so I think what you're going to see in, with both big tech, but also other tech companies more broadly is these, play, these players that already have huge concentrations of users will start to offer financial services within their applications. And I think we're in the early days of that wave and it's going to come out and over the next five years and become a huge force in fintech. Whether they are winners in the long run, I don't know. I think there's still a lot of value to being a focused fintech, but I definitely think you're going to see competition from tech players because the tools are there for them to build these services for users. Yeah, there's embedded finance. And I, I think you said it really well on a recent podcast and you defined it as going to bring in financial services to meet people where they are. Uh, I think there's a really yeah. good way of looking at it for people who, who are on the outside. But I think I kind of see, and, and we're in, I guess, the, you know, the, the payment side of the business, which has been 
I guess, an early adopter in, or a, a, an easy kind of embedded financial service to, or an easy financial service to embed. So the way I see it is on, on one side, you have, I guess, traditional kind of financial services um, who are uh, looking to provide a financial service, be it a lender, be it a, a payments company, and, and they can embed certain kind of infrastructure in terms of what they're doing. And then on the far right, which is probably the way are the, are the pure kind of software platforms who don't know anything about financial services, but their customers have a requirement for this, but it will take a little bit longer for them to get their heads around. And the value of partnerships there is going to be key in terms of kind of taking them on this journey. I think in the middle, you have a really interesting world of, and I know you guys play quite heavily in kind of the, the wealth tech space and the lend tech space. And it's, it's how those financial services companies are looking to embed other financial services into their application. And I think both Currency Cloud and, and Plaid share the view, and it's the kind of common view at the moment that software is in the world or every fintech is going to become a, or every company is going to become a fintech company. Um, but it probably starts with companies offering financial services now are becoming more fintech as they embed more financial services into, into their stack and into their offering. Uh, I 100% agree with you. I think you put it very well. And I, and I think I, I agree that the the mode of the moment is that thinking that we shared and you guys shared, I know about every company is becoming a, a fintech company. Fully agree with that. I think the other interesting dynamic that you see is while you see traditional technology players starting to build in financial services, you also are still seeing an unbundling of traditional banking applications into individual fintechs focused on those particular verticals, and then starting to build into quote unquote super apps. So you're seeing incredibly interesting competitive dynamics across the spectrum there, right? And I think the super app is also something that is rising up as a, as a trend as well. And so I think ultimately, again, this goes back to there's going to be a ton of competition here. And when you think about switching costs now being as easy as downloading the new app and onboarding as a user on your mobile phone, uh, I think competition is only going to increase over the coming years. I think that, that kind of takes us to, I guess, the final point, which is a lot's happened. Over the, last, over the last two or three years, but certainly over the last year, we've had this kind of COVID-fueled digitalization, um, you know, the catalyst for a, for a bunch of, of new kind of innovative companies, which you know, you're, you're, you're helping partnering, empowering a number of them. But what next in kind of open banking? And, and I also wanted to ask about the term kind of open finance, because people talk about open banking and open finance and understand the difference between those. Is it kind of open banking 2.0? Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Yeah, I guess the way I always define that to people is open banking is the ability to connect to your current account or your in the, if you're in the US, your checking account. Like that, that is what open banking is. It's services built around your checking account. Open finance is the idea of extending that into the other parts of your financial life, your mortgages, your investments, your pensions. And, and as I said previously, I think the interesting thing about the US is because it's been market-led, a lot of those use cases are already available through Plaid and other platforms. And here, because it's regulatorily driven in the UK and Europe, that's what now the open banking implementation entity and, and UK policymakers and European policymakers are turning to, which is how do we take PSD2 and extend that concept of open banking into new services where it makes it really easy for you as a, as a user or a small business to track your whole financial health. So I think that that development is in early stages. I think you're going to start to see the ability to manage your pensions, move your money around to wherever it's getting the best rate track your mortgage rates and compare across providers, those are going to become easier and easier and more and more available via API to be built into other applications and services. The other trend that I think you're going to see in terms of the future of open banking is open banking, since it you know, really came to market in, in 2018 and 2019, 
has been predominantly from a traffic perspective focused on data use cases. Yeah. And now you're starting to see a real growth in open banking. And again, when you step back and think about in a world where everyone is at home, you're doing finance from your phone, you're doing payments, you know, you're shopping on your phone, you're doing payments on the web in the browser. It seems very obvious that over the long run, paying with your bank account and having your bank account as a payment method. And as an SMB or a merchant, you have a bank account, having that as your receiving and reconciliation path, connecting those directly is going to start to happen. And that's what open banking payments is starting to, to move into. And so I think you're going to see real trends there where it starts to compete with cards and provide a real alternative and cost-effective method for merchants and fintechs to power payments. So I think a combination of expanding financial data into new paths of open finance to be able to track your holistic life and seeing open banking payments grow in maturity are going to be two trends that you see over the coming years. So it takes me back to um, the point we made about Brexit, MasterCard, Interchange. So with, and it's not like open banking payments and, and Plaid are unknown to the market and unknown to these players. So why, and then you don't work for MasterCard, because so maybe this is unfair, but why in a world where you have these alternatives and there's a big push in kind of better, cheaper ways to initiate payments and make payments, would, would a company like that increase their, their fees on cards so much? It's, it's, it's crazy to me. I mean, obviously, it's great for people like you because it's such a big opportunity. But I think it was an interesting suggestion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it has created a great opportunity. I think I can't put myself in, in their shoes in terms of, of why they did that. But I think the probably the simple answer is because they can coming yeah. out of Brexit. <laughs> and I think realistically as well, it's still early days for open banking payments. And I think there's lots of functionality. There's lots of growing the network. There's lots of growing acceptance with merchants that has to happen before it's a true replacement. So I don't think this is going to happen overnight. But I think it's a very classic example of something that people are probably overestimating the impact on one year, but underestimating drastically the impact it's going to have over the next decade. I think by the time it's, you know, it's 2031, open banking payments will probably be the default payment method for almost every application and service that you see. Interesting. But it's, it's going to take time. And I think in the meantime, I, I think networks will continue to try and monetize as much as they can. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the, the time scale is interesting because I, I guess for, for things like open banking, some of this is the distribution approach of the, the new innovators in fintech. And we've seen a, a huge growth of that in 2020. And, and, and hopefully, as you said earlier, this will continue to happen. And if, if fintechs keep, and, and, and you know, old and new keep innovating at the pace they have been innovating, then that, can, I think, can, can force that change perhaps quicker than, hopefully quicker than that 10-year that timescale. Um, but it's been awesome having you on. Um, what can people look out for? I know you had, you had an announcement, I think it was last month with the partnership with Atom Bank um, in terms of the, the access to loans or SMBs, which you think is awesome. Um, what else has, has Plank got up their sleeve for, for, for 21 and beyond? Oh, that's great. We, we have a lot of really exciting partnerships coming up. So working hand in hand with banking as a service players, payment service providers, I, I think there's going to be some exciting announcements that we can share in the future there as well as new customers that are building use cases around open banking payments that we'll be excited to announce, uh, as well as further expansion uh, into Europe. So excited to bring, bring all those to the market. Um, and I think you know if people want to, to look out for more, they can always go to plaid.com, check out our blog and see the latest on, on what we're doing. But there's a lot of builders out there. I'm talking to people building something new every day, and it's just an exciting time for FinTech. Uh, I'm sure you guys are feeling the same thing at Currency Cloud. So I, I'm 
I'm excited and hopeful for what 2021 brings. And, you know, it'll be nice to, to take our slippers off and get back in the office as well and, and get back to building. So on that note, you guys, what, what's your, your stance on return to the office? And, and, and it, interesting, and I was about to wrap up there, but this brings me on to, I think, also what's a really important part of, of, of your success and, and people's success is the culture and, and maintaining that culture. And obviously you came over to the UK two years ago, but you know, half of the time has been spent building a team from your, you know, your, your bedroom. Um, but what does it look like? For, you know, have you got any kind of early views or is it government guidelines when you, you start heading back to the office? I think government guidelines are going to be the, the, the minimum bar, right? We would never go back to office before that. I think the thing that we're trying to think about is what is the right model here? I think everyone has worked from home long enough to recognize there are a lot of people who really, myself included, who really miss the office environment. It's a lot easier to build culture in that setup, but also there are some real advantages to work from home and flexibility. I think we did a survey recently of our employees and the overwhelming, like 90% of people wanted a hybrid model when we come back. Yeah. Some flexibility to be in office, some flexibility to be work from home. I actually think, so I think that's how we're going to approach it Vlad. And I think that's how a lot of companies are going to approach it. I think the idea that you have to commute every single day and be in the office every single day is probably going to be really tough coming out of 2020 to make that tenable for many people. On the other hand, it is far easier to build a culture. And I think really exciting for personnel development and the lunchroom conversations and all of that to be in an office. I'm excited to get back to that world as well. But I think you have to you have to have a path there and make it flexible for your employees and compete on that with other companies as well to win the best yeah. talent. Yeah, and this, we had the same thing. And, and as we were building out the US office and I was over there, the, the, it was like a family. But it's also, you don't want to be around your family all the time. So yeah, giving them the flexibility, say, listen, why don't we come in three days a week and, and meet up and, and have that kind of, you know, the, the deep work can stay at home, but the collaboration and that culture building happens in, in the office. So um, I'm certainly looking forward to, I've been, you know, since I came back in December, I haven't been back to the UK office since I'm looking forward to, to going back. But Keith, listen, it's been awesome having you on. Thanks a lot for, for your time. Platter, one of my, my favorite companies in the space and you know, hoping 21 will be as exciting as 2020 uh, for you guys. Thank you for having me, Rich. And, and same to Currency Cloud. I'm really excited for what you guys are building. And thanks for having me on the chat. It's great. Man, thanks. Currency Cloud is an online payments company that makes international money transfers fast and simple for businesses. We're building a borderless future where international transactions are seamless for a better user experience. Discover the world's most trusted payment platform and our toolkit of developer-friendly APIs at CurrencyCloud.com. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.